Podcast. My name is Derek Thomas. Thank you so much for either streaming or downloading today's episode. This is episode 76, and there is so much I want to tell you today. The intro today runs a little long. After I'm done speaking, you're going to hear my guest today, the amazing Cindy Healy, in her little clip she had on Goldcast, tell you a little bit about her story, and then our interview after that's going to really put it in more detail for you. So I just want, for those of you that don't listen to podcasts very often, I want you to know that my podcast is a labor of love, right? So I have 76 episodes, but there's probably been close to 90 shows. And I'm going to tell you every single guest I have, I've had on has moved me in their life's work. I've been, their passion has instilled passion into me. And my podcast is basically kind of reflecting that out to everyone else to see why I've been moved, to show people why I've been moved. Unfortunately, you have podcasts out there that what they do is they pay a monthly a fee to a service, a guest finding service. And this service provides them with guests, random guests, right? It's very similar to ordering an Uber, right? Oh, am I getting a Prius today? Or oh, who's picking me up in the Geo Metro, right? Who's going to come in the um, you know, Honda Pilot? Like it's just whatever, it's whoever. There's no passion behind the interviews. It's very much as if, if a bottle of melatonin could speak. That's what these knockoff podcasts that try to be like mine are, are very much like. So, and, and these guests that these podcasts get, and I can think of one in particular, you know, it's it could be uh, the aspiring karaoke lounge singer or the rap artist living in his mother's basement. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you're getting random people you know nothing about. There's no passion there. I'm going to tell you who I am passionate about, and that is Cindy Healy, and an absolutely astounding human being. Here's her story. I was at the movies, and Matt Damon up on the big screen. He was stranded on Mars, but then he gets out of his Mars car, and he starts digging, and I realize exactly what he's digging for, and the tears start flowing down my cheeks. And I'm trying hard to suppress a sob because I know I'm the only one in the theater crying at this part of the movie. I'm just wiping away tears. That's my spacecraft. You see, I'm one of the 200 or so people on this planet that put that spacecraft, Mars Pathfinder, up there for Matt Damon to find her. I'm really proud of some software we wrote that uh, helped perfect the navigation system for the spacecraft. Because you know what they call a spacecraft without perfect navigation? Space crap. <laughs> anyway, I, another, another hat I got to wear was writing uplink code. And so my name was in every transmission that went from Earth to Mars for the entire mission. Hundreds and thousands of messages. So when the Martians finally do come to Earth, they're going to be looking for me. <laughs> but the hat that remained elusive that I really wanted was to be on the launch team. And so this was about 20 people that would go live and work at the Kennedy Space Center and put the spacecraft together for the final time. 
and get her ready for launch, do testing and stuff. So one day, my coworker Ron, the Unix system administrator, he lamented to me that he was on the list, but he didn't want to go because his wife was going to have a baby and it was terrible timing and it was all wrong for him and I saw my opportunity. And I said, I'll do it. You can train me how to be the Unix system administrator. How hard could it be? And I'll go in your place. And he actually liked the idea and we got management to buy in and the next thing I know, I'm at Cape Kennedy unpacking computers, laying cable under the floor and formatting Unix machines as if I knew what I was doing. On the night of the launch, I was about 20 minutes late getting to our outpost building because my buddy Becky and I had stopped to take a selfie with the rocket. We were, we were ahead of our time on selfies. And when I get there, everybody's, everybody's looking at me like I'm late or something and giving me the stink eye. And, and I'm like, what's wrong? We had no connection. We were dead in the water, no communications whatsoever. It could, we could scrub the launch. And this was a job for the Unix system administrator. <laughs> so I panicked a little and I just, you know, talk about imposter syndrome. I literally was not a Unix system administrator. And I, um, but I dug deep and thought back to my training with Rob, with Ron, and the first thing he told me was you gotta check the cables. So I checked the back of every computer, I checked every line, I checked every piece of equipment, and I finally made my way over to the Cisco router where sure enough, a cable had come loose. And I jiggled that baby back in, and we were back online. And I was a hero as the Unix system administrator. So we went on to have a great launch, great flight, amazing uh, operations on the surface of Mars. Pathfinder lived up to her name, and she found a path for planetary travel that hadn't been done before. <laughs> and she just blazed this trail to Mars. And all the subsequent Mars missions have, have built upon her legacy and have leveraged her success, including future missions that will put people on Mars. I learned so many amazing lessons in those three and a half years. I learned to not worry about doubters, to take on big challenges. I learned to take risks and do things even if I don't know what I'm doing. And I learned to always check the cables. <laughs>
to kind of get the most out of people, right? You you give them opportunities to kind of um, succeed at their maximum you know level, so that they can kind of um, perform to the best of their abilities. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean that's what draw, drew me to the job. Um, it's uh, building learning systems for our employees to help them be just the absolute best versions of themselves they can be in their uh, role. And so it's it's pretty cool. It's it's really uh, it's something that I would do um, anyway. Type of a thing. It's like that's kind of my life. One of my life purposes is to help people be the best versions of themselves. And so I get to do that through software and through um, uh, internal tool. And so it's it's a great reason to get out of bed every day. Yeah, and, and you, are, you are certainly, and I, I'm saying this because it's the truth, you are certainly blessed to mentor and you are blessed to inspire. And not everybody has that. Not everybody has that ability. Some people think they do. They call themselves, you know, motivational speakers. And the only problem is they're not very motivational. You on the <laughs> yeah, you on the other hand are very motivational because your actions speak for what you do. I mean, I, I just I love everything about your life and your stories. Well, thank you. Well, and that's um, you know that's uh, something that's on my bucket list is to I'm getting a lot of speaking things going now, but I eventually want to do that for a living. I I would love to do a TED talk, so that's on my vision board is to do a TED talk. And um, yeah, people are responding to my message, so um, I want to keep that going and how just is, try to help is, people. How is now? Do you reach out for a TED talk, or do they have to come to you? Because you. You're a no-brainer for a TED Talk. That's a no-brainer. Like, that should be done already. Yeah, well, I don't know exactly how it works. The Seattle, um, so I live in the Seattle area, and the Seattle TED Talk, or the TEDx event here, they had an open call, and so you had to submit an application and do a, a sample of what your talk would be about. And I submitted one, and I did not get selected. Um, and so, but I'm going to keep doing that every chance I get. I think I have a good story to tell and um, and a good challenge for people. Uh, and... Um, so yeah, so I'm going to keep at it. And but one of the things that I do is I tell anyone who will listen, hey, I want to do a TED or a TEDx talk. So I'm telling you because that by putting it out there is the only way that it's going to happen. Yeah, and I'll do everything I can on my end because I I really believe your message applies to kids, it applies to adults, it applies to everybody. Whereas certain TED talks can kind of just hit a certain portion of people. I feel like yours hits. It hits everyone. I feel like it applies to oh, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Especially because I work with kids as well. I mean, mm -hmm. your, sto your story is a story that especially kids and girls need to hear, young girls that are looking for role models because, I mean, you are certainly all of that and, and, and then some, Cindy. Oh, thank you. That And that that's my message right is uh is hey if i can do it i believe you can do it too i came from super humble beginnings um and uh just was not expected to to do anything much in life and not that i'm running microsoft or anything i've i've worked my way to middle management but it's a great life and i'm thankful for it every day and it's all because i decided that to go to school and get a degree in computer science and then um, turn that into a career, right? Otherwise, I would be um, living a very, very humble existence. 
So you've had a couple, and we'll get to this, but you've had a couple of situations where you were at a, at a dream job scenario, right? Because there's, you've been a couple places where most people would do anything to be or to do what you've <laughs> done. I mean, not Microsoft for sure, but there's been other things. But I wanted to, you, oh, kind yeah. of, you hinted at this. I want to talk about early on, and I thought I read something doing my research where, and, and boy, if I'm wrong in this, I'm going to be so embarrassed. Where, you know, early on, your expectation was more focused on what you can do in the house or in the home versus, oh, yeah. versus what you can do, let's say, you know, in a college classroom, in a, in, in a school, in a high school, in a middle school. Yeah. Am I right with that, Cindy? Yeah. And it's funny. So I know you picked up on my story from the moth. I just recently went to another moth story slam and, and told the story of, of the beginning and, um, and I, and I won another story slam. So that was pretty fun. So that video won't go up for a couple of months, but, um, I, w- uh, I was, I come from Southern California long before, you know, in Orange County specifically, long before it was the OC and before, you know, the only real housewives were my friend's parents or my friend's moms. <laughs> and, uh, and just really, it was a simple, simple time. It was a great place to grow up. Um, you know, you could play outside and, you know, you didn't have to be watched like a hawk, like everyone watches their kids now. It was very, um, it was a wonderful place to grow up, but the, it just, the expectations were super low. The expectations were super low. And even for a kid like me where I had, I showed promise and I, uh, I got good grades. I was in the gifted program and I, you know, uh, I, I brag that in the seventh grade, I wrote my brother's high school senior term paper so he could graduate from high school <laughs> and got to be. And, um, and so, yeah, but the, and even though, you know, teachers, especially when I was younger, teachers would talk about college and, and I would watch college football games and I'd have, you know, a, a dream. Yeah, someday I want to go to college. But I had no idea how to make college happen. And my parents had no idea how to make college happen. There was no savings for college. And so, um, yeah, as a young girl, the message that I got was you better get in that kitchen and learn how to cook because you're going to be somebody's wife someday. And that, and so that was really the expectation. A lot of kids I went to high school with got married right out of high school. My parents had gotten married right out of high school. And so just, I'd say it was just, it's this whole thing of low expectations. And, um, and that's what we can, that's really a part of my message is that we have to make sure that we're not, um, shackling people with low expectations. And so anyway, yeah, so there was no expectations for me and, um, I graduated from high school. I was lucky to graduate. Not lucky to graduate because, I mean, I had good grades. But two-thirds of my class graduated. A third of my high school class did not make it across the line for graduation. So that just kind of shows you the environment. And then what a lot of kids do in Southern California, um, in the summer, after I graduated, I got a job at a local amusement park. And um, and. I had uh, just enough self-esteem to think that I was too good for the Movie Land Wax Museum, but not enough to think I was Disneyland material. So I got a job at Knott's Berry Farm in the Roaring Twenties Arcade. It was called the Buffalo Nickel Arcade. And I was, you know, you, you just, you work at various games and you carry around this big bag of quarters. And um, it wasn't long before I started getting shifts in the coveted change booth. That was the primo spot to work. And um, one day my lead, who was just a few years older than me, and she was going to UC Irvine, 
Um, her name was Helen, and she came over and she started talking to me. And she said, do you know why you get to sit in the change booth all the time? And I said, no, why? And she said, because your change count is always accurate. And, of course, I'm thinking, well, how hard is that? But, again, it's like I didn't know. I'm like, how hard is that? And she goes, oh, you'd be surprised. And so it's like, huh, something that I really took for granted, she was complimenting me on. And then she, and she took the time to compliment me on. And then she said, if you're good at math, and I was like, yeah, I'm good at math. I was good at math in high school. She said, you should go to school and you should enroll in a university and you should major in computer science. It's a growing field. They're going to need women. And starting salaries out of with a bachelor's are about $25,000 a year. So I was like, what? I was making $2.20 an hour. So 25000 sounded like a dream come true. Yeah. Yes. And so, uh, so I did it. And it's funny is that Helen has no idea that I took her advice. We didn't keep in touch or anything. And, um, and I went and did it. And, and there was times in school that I wanted to quit that I was like, what am I crazy? This is, you know, I have never touched a computer before really, other than maybe do a little word processing. And I filled out that application and I, I filled in the computer science as my major and, and I just stuck with it. You know, and and it took me a while to graduate, but I eventually did. And my first job paid twenty eight thousand dollars. Wow. Cindy, are you ever um, do you ever wonder why? Because I feel a little bit in this way that, you know, I feel like, you know, you mentioned your school early on where many, you know, um, students didn't have, you know, they weren't, you know, going to college. I mean. Yeah. Unless you're the one of those top kids that are, you know, had, were great in, in the classroom, I almost feel like the guidance counselors kind of didn't even really see you. Like you, you were non-existent. It was like, yeah, well, you know, you should go in the army, or you know, you should, you know, stay yeah. home. Did you feel that way? Did you feel like? I, did you ever wonder, like, your would your life have been different if guidance counselors? I mean, because your life works out has worked out phenomenally. But do you ever wonder if, if guidance counselors can kind could have, you know, reached out and seen your potential way before Helen yeah. did? If anything would change, no, that's a great question. I don't know, and it's like I, I would, I'm, I don't remember a high school counselor ever talking to me really, or maybe if they did, but it was, it was, it was really just, you know, if you would have asked me in tenth grade, are you going to college? Of course, I'm going to college, right? But I just didn't know how to make it happen, and so yeah, I, you know, what do we do to make that? easier for people or to apply for scholarships. I, you know, I believe, you know, I had a belief that only the top of the top get scholarships and that's not true. A lot of people can get scholarships and, and you know, what's, what's, uh, what's unique to my story too, is just how cheap college was back then. You know, California had a very robust California system for college. And so, um, you barely even needed any money back then. I know now it's a lot different, but there are loans and programs and there's ways to make it happen. And, and, and I'm sure online there's a lot more information, but back then we didn't have the internet. And so we did need people to intervene and, and help us just figure out how to make it happen. Yeah. I, I completely relate to you in that way. And that's probably the only way we're like, uh, but like, I feel like, you know, if, if guidance counselors, you know, or in a school situation would have kind of, I don't know, seen what's not necessarily obvious, right. To kind of see, yeah. see that kid with the hidden potential to see that kid. Cause I mean, I had, to, and I never make interviews about me and I never will, but I had to, when I went to, when I went to college, I had to kind of find my way. I had to kind of put in the extra time you know, after school with uh, after classes for extra help, and 
all that other stuff. But I made it work in college, and it's and the guidance counselors are always telling me, no, you should go, you know, you need to go to the army, or you need to do this, you need to do that. Hmm. And then they, I just felt like they, I feel like they dropped the ball a little with you, and I felt like they dropped it a lot with people yeah. that I knew myself. But I feel like today's a different story, though. I think counselors, I think teachers are more like I think your ability in math would have been recognized way sooner than it was by Helen. Does that make sense? Yes, but here's it. I was not like a math scholar. I was just not afraid of math, right? right. It, like, it didn't take, you know, you didn't have to be a math whiz to to get through computer science. It was just like, does you, are you capable of thinking logically or not, right? And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think... Uh, as much as we want counselors and teachers, you know, I think anybody who's a role model has the responsibility to try to try to put that hand out and get and help somebody and give them a hand up. Right. Mm. Uh, and so we need to make sure, you know, one thing that I try to tell people is you can't you got to make sure that you that you're not taking it for granted that they already know that to keep planting seeds, especially with young people about you could have a promising career. You can go to college. It's not that hard. You you know, you, uh, and just help them see the path forward. And, and my, oh, my number one thing, and this is what I want my TED talk to be about is just the power of catching people being good at something. Mm, that's right. Well said, well said. Absolutely. That, you have to catch people being good at things and because they may brush it off just like me. I'm like, everyone can count, you know, how hard is that? And she's like, no, you'd be surprised. Right. And um, so, so that's what I, one of the things that I try to do as a mentor and a coach and as a boss is I try to catch my people being good at things and people light up like a Christmas tree when you tell them what they're good at. Yeah, for and, sure. It, it's just, I think it's some. It's so easy to be critical and so easy to criticize people, but it's like you get way more. To me, it's way more satisfying to catch people being good at things, and then when you do have a little piece of feedback for them, they accept it because you've built all this cachet. Yeah, and, and Cindy, I wonder as you were speaking, I wonder how many of your graduating class that didn't graduate, you know, those thirty-three percent or what have you, mm -hmm. if if they had been caught doing something good on, on a more frequent basis if they had been you know if people said something positive positive to them a lot more if that would have made a difference instead of you know your expectation is to be in the kitchen you know what i'm saying like i oh, i wonder totally. if that would have made a difference you know yeah that well and if the expectation is just that and hey there's nothing wrong with getting married and having children but if if that's kind of seen as um is kind of that's as far as you go and everyone just lives comfortably and this is before you know, so when I grew up, um, I graduated from high school in 1980, so that was a long time ago, right? But before, um, at that point in time, I think people could still get by on kind of a blue-collar existence a lot in a lot better shape than they can today, right? right? And um, uh, the cost of living has gone up dramatically since then. Yep. And so even more reasons why we want to we encourage people to be professions. You know, we don't have enough people to fill the technology jobs that, that we have. We, we, you hear so much about automation and digital transformation and, and things, but we're looking at a, we're looking at a gap in the future because there's always going to be a need for people to manage these um, programs to manage 
something that's being done automatically and, and keep improving it and tweaking it. Anyway, the, the, um, the skills gap that we're looking at uh, as we keep going forward is, is dramatic. And these are great jobs for people. And Cindy, if this next question is too personal, you can certainly tell me to shut up. Um, what do you do with this? I imagine working for you would be awesome because you're 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 a half full per kind of person. If if I worked for you and I and I'm not where you want me to be, right? If you think there's another level that I haven't reached yet, how do you do? How do you approach me? How do you? I don't want to say fix because that sounds awfully uh, negative. But how do you get me to where I should be? How do you? Is it with positive reinforcement? How do you how do you do that as somebody who's you know I'm, I'm sure many of the people who work for you love it, but like what do I? How do you get to me? How do you make me get to that next level as far as performance? Uh, well, I think a lot of it is we you know we we work on it together. So also I I'm trained to be a professional coach, so. I love talking to people about what are their dreams? Where do they, where do you know, where do you see yourself in a couple of years? And then let's, let's set what that vision statement looks like of where you want to be either at the end of this year or in a couple of years. What do you want to, what do you want to do with your career and your life? And let's work back from there. Okay. If you know, and that's how a lot of this stuff has happened for me is that I've set a goal out of, um, wanting to do a TED talk, right? I, I set that goal a while back. And then when opportunities come my way that point me closer to doing a TED talk, of course I say yes to them, right? right. And so that's what I try to instill that in other people that it's like, hey, if you want a promotion or if you want more achieving goals in general, it's about going into the future. What does it see? What does it look like? What does it smell like, taste like? Who else is there? And and really, I mean, spending some time to close your eyes and soak in the future and really absorb it. You, you're realistically in the future. You can see yourself in that future vision and then work back from there, right? So what do you need to do differently today to start getting closer to that vision that you've set? And, um, and usually that helps people get really honest and get really crisp on what they need to do differently. And then, yeah, if it's an employee and somebody I manage, I may have to help a little bit, right? right. And it's like, well, and, you know, one of the things we, exercises we do is what do I need to start doing? What do I need to stop doing? And what am I going to continue doing? Right. And, and that frees people up also when you think about it through those uh, terms. So yeah, I was gonna. I was just gonna go back and talk about you know when you were going to college. Um, you start off at a community college, then you make your way to a four year college. Is that how it worked out for you? Yeah, yeah. So I did. Uh, you know, um, when I when I graduated, you know, some of my friends were going to colleges, right? And um, and then, but an awful lot of people like me who just really didn't have much of a plan, we enrolled at the local local junior college, which was you know, basically free except for the cost of the textbooks. <laughs> and um, uh, it was just the 13th grade because I knew so many people from high school there. But it was it was a good chance to kind of get a feel for what college was like, where the teachers don't care if you don't come to class, right? right. Um, 
And so there was that level of accountability. And then also to just dabble in what am I interested in? And, um, and then, uh, somewhere along in, during the course of that year, I had decided to apply to San Diego state, which was a few hours South of me. And, um, and I got in and the rest is history. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's a great school too. And and I think people say people, kids that are, you know, looking for an identity or looking to to find out what they want to do. I think they saved some money going to a junior college or a community college too. So that's a benefit of that as well. Did you find yourself saving some money in that regard? Yeah, I'm sure I did. I ended up um, using those credits. They did help me graduate eventually, right? Right. Um, but when I went to – so my first semester at San Diego State was – the tuition was only $99. So yeah. that was almost free too. So it, like I said, it was, it's crimin- it was criminal at that time not to be taking advantage of it. Um, but uh, But yeah, so I saved a little bit of money. And then – so th- this is one piece of advice that I did get that – um, that really, or two pieces of advice that I got in junior high that really stuck with me. And one of them was, even if you don't know what you want to get a degree in, right? Even if you don't know exactly what you're going to be when you grow up, go to college and get a degree because it shows future employers that you can do hard things. Getting a degree is hard, right? And then the other piece of advice I got was to... If, if at all possible, go to a school where you live in the dorms and you get immersed in the whole college experience um, versus going to a commuter school. Right. And so when I applied to San Diego State, I was able to go live in the dorms and have that amazing experience. That was a, a that really was a wonderful experience. And um, and then uh, there was definitely times where I thought about changing my major or there were definitely times when I thought I'm not cut out for this. I should do something else. But then I would just look at how much more time that would add on to my how long I was going to be in college. And I and I so I stuck with it. There was times I mean, I had to take the first semester of calculus. I had to take it three times because I didn't the first two times I thought I could power through without taking the prerequisite trigonometry course. And I, you know, the second time I failed it, I figured that out that it's like I better go take trig somewhere. So then I went to a local community college in San Diego and took a trig class for summer school and then came back and was able to do well in, in calculus from after that. But it was like there was definitely times when I had to persevere. There's times where I worked two jobs to I was supporting myself after my first year of college. I really had to support myself the rest of the way. And um, and so, yeah, the one one year or one semester, I worked two jobs and I was down to one class. Um, but I just never gave up. And I just knew that I, it wasn't over until I had the piece of paper in my hand that says I said I was a graduate. And so, um, so I did, so those two pieces of advice really stuck with me and I would encourage that to anybody that it's, it's not so much about knowing exactly what you want to do. It's about doing hard things. Oh, I'm in complete agreement, Cindy. And, and that's, you know, I think that's lost now in the, in the four year degree. Everyone just assumes they have to go to college, but and they do, but I think it's what it shows employers that, right? Because look, yeah. how much, look how much you struggled and persevered, right? So if I'm looking at your career, your you know collegiate uh, life and what happened academically and so forth, I'm looking and I'm saying, wow, she really stuck through it. You know, she was she was away from home. She really plugged away, got a four year degree. You know, that's that's a huge thing if I'm an employer. 
I think so. I mean, um, like I said, it shows that you can. It shows that you can finish things. That's what am I? What am I looking for when I hire people? I'm looking for people who are finishers, right? Yeah, I completely agree. And and let's fast forward here. So let's get you. Okay. So how does how does NASA unfold? I'm sorry, I spent so much time about your your life, oh, but it's, it's fascinating. So we, we we fast forward to NASA. Paint a picture for me how this unfolds for you. Yeah. So when when I graduated from school, I the first job that I ended up getting was in, at an aerospace company, and so with and then within that aerospace company and that job I did not like at all. It was super, um, gosh, it was super straight laced. Let me say, and I it was basically prison with a paycheck. We had to uh, we had to account for our whereabouts and what we were working on in six minute increments because it was all government contracts. And so it was like, you couldn't, if you were going to be away from your desk for longer than six minutes, you needed to, to, you know, you needed to write it down on your little sheet of paper. And so it was just, it was really weird the way we were, it just it felt like you were being watched all the time. So I was like, this is not for me. I've made a big mistake. This is not for me. Um, but I took advantage of everything they had there that was kind of extracurricularly curricular. I took a couple of Dale Carnegie classes there. And so I got to learn about public speaking and things. I took different programming classes there, um, learning ADA and learning C programming languages, which I knew a little bit from college, but got better at them there. Right. And so then after a few years, um, I, I was lucky enough to work on a, a big project where we had a bunch of what we call contract engineers there. So the hired guns, that they're not on the permanent payroll. They come in, work for a year or so on a project, and then they leave. And so I worked with a bunch of them and I learned that they were making like three or four times as much money as I was making because they were willing to take on this risk of not having a full-time job, right? That they would go from job to job and you could end up with uh, dry spells in between. Anyway, so I started asking them about that and how do I get involved in that? And um, and because I knew Ada, that was a at the time that was very much a desired language for embedded systems programming. And a lot of aerospace is embedded systems programming, um, and which is custom software for custom chips and custom hardware configurations. And uh, um, so. What it with about three years after I started at that aerospace company, I left to go sight unseen, hired without an interview to a contract job that paid about three times what I was making, um, and uh, and it was a huge risk. But it was just like you know what, I'm doing it. And so I went and I did that job. I was working on a submarine contract, and that lasted about nine months. I learned a ton about what it is to be a contract worker. And then I worked on some other missile projects. And so I started doing this, you know, you kind of get in the in the system of, and you, I would see some of the same people at different jobs, you know, and they would be short-term stints, six, nine months. And then um, I was asking everybody, okay, if this is what we do, where is the best aerospace place to work and do this? And everyone kept saying JPL, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And so I asked my um, contracting company to get me interviews at JPL, and they did. And I went there, and that was when it was just like, oh, I have found my home. It's like a college campus. People, are, you know, everyone's wearing shorts, and um, 
everyone's smiling and happy and they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And I just absolutely loved JPL from day one. And that was, and I, but I was a contract worker. I wasn't a full-time employee at JPL. I was a contract worker, but I managed to stay there for six and a half years and um, three years working on a project for the Deep Space Network, which is the big antennas that we have around the world that help us communicate with our spacecraft and satellites and also search for extraterrestrial life. And um, and then the um, three and a half years on Pathfinder. Wow. And, and I can't even imagine how you felt emotionally going from that one job where you're going, you know, just collecting a paycheck. You were so miserable. Oh, yeah. And now JPL where it's like the, the skies have opened up for you here, right? I mean, this is... <sighs> This is where you should have been the whole time. This is kind of where you're you, you feel at home. Is that a fair is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. It was wonderful. And you know, I, I you know, another one of my big passions is around diversity and inclusion. And at most places, especially being a woman engineer, it was like you're allowed to be there, but it was it was uncomfortable. It wasn't like a you didn't fit in and it, it was, you were, it was like, especially then I was very young. Right. So it was almost like I was an oddity. <laughs> right. And, um, and then at, at JPL, it was so casual and they had, a, they just had a great culture of being inclusive. And so not only did I feel included and allowed to be there, I felt like I belonged there. And I think that most people that work there would say that, that there's just this sense of belonging. It feels like a family. It's, it's an absolute wonderful place to work. And, and then from JPL, that's how you develop the connection, the connection to NASA, right? That's where that comes in. Yeah. Yeah. So JPL is a NASA subsidiary. Gotcha. Yeah. And you know, I was while doing this research. I, I know I've decided, I know what the title of your book is going to be when you finally decide to. Oh, I got to write one. Yeah. That, that comes after, right after the Ted talk. So what's the name of the book? The, the name of your book's going to be called I'll do it. Right. That's yeah, gotta be, that's totally. got that's got to be the name of your book. I mean, that's that's got to be it. I'll do it. I mean, that's that's your that's your thing, and that's and it's so powerful. And we're gonna get to what that means because that's really an important part of your life. So I have to ask you: Are you a big movie person? I am. So <laughs> I was I, listening to some of your your shows about the five tear jerkers and um, that kind of thing. So I know you love the right stuff. That's a big movie with you. Oh, right? totally, totally. So, so we're gonna get to the Martian, which. Oh, which wrecks me. Yes. So are there, uh, what, what are the other, like, are you an interstellar? Did you see that? Like, what are some of the other movies that I like interstellar? I'll tell you the one that, um, that I, I can never turn it off if it's on TV. And that I also did the ugly cry in the movie theater, which I, I think I'm in the rare, uh, stratosphere of people who did this was Armageddon is one of my absolute favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. That's see, you remind me of me in this way. Like you're you're very emotional when it comes to watching like movies or like uh, yeah. my girlfriend was making fun of me like the other day because we were watching this Kia commercial and there's this female astronaut talking to her husband in the car and he's like, "Honey, there's a full moon out tonight," and she's like, "On the moon." And then oh. uh, it was like, I started like, oh, I love that commercial. I can't, I can't get it out of my head. But so, so movies like you're a big movie person, which is so I'm fantastic. Yeah. Yep. So you, you, you're watching the movie, The Martian and you give, um, uh, let me ask you before I get to this. What is, you mentioned the moth, is it moths speeches or explain, yeah. explain what that is to me. Cause I, I was oh my gosh. with that. Yeah. Well, so. 
the podcast world, this the moth has a huge podcast, and I had never heard of it. And um, here I'm going to give you a long story, but the um, I had. I had, I had put it out into the universe that I want to do a TED talk. Right. And so then, um, that we were doing an event at Microsoft for women to get up and speak. And my organization was sponsoring it. And I was talking to one of the event planners and, and actually my, I had thrown this pitch day for people to pitch ideas of things we should do. And I had sponsored the pitch day. Um, and this idea for it came out of, for the, for the talks came out of the pitch day. And so I was interested. I was like a stakeholder. Hey, how's that going? But I, I wasn't going to put myself to be in it because I was like, Hey, I ran the pitch day. People have seen enough of me type of a thing. That was my thinking at the time. And the girl goes, well, actually we don't have enough speakers. And this was a week before the event. And I said, I'll do it. Right. And at that time I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I just said, I'll do it because it was, again, I had set this vision for a Ted talk. So when an opportunity to speak shows up, I have to say yes. Right. And so, and then I thought about it and I bounced a couple of ideas off people and I go, well, I, I, I worked on Mars Pathfinder. I've got some cool stories from there. Maybe I should talk about that, that, or else I had done this walk on the Camino de Santiago in Spain for a week. It's like, or I could talk about that. And that was a lot fresher. And people were like, tell the Pathfinder stories, tell the Pathfinder stories. No, you know, no, that's unusual. That's super unusual. And so I, I put together the, the Pathfinder story. And, um, and at the end of that, somebody from the audience said, you should go tell that story at the moth. And I was like, what's the moth? And they said, it's a storytelling show on NPR and it's a storytelling podcast. And, but it's really, it's live events around the world where it's like performance art or it's kind of like a poetry slam, but they call it a story slam. And you go to these events and it's 10 bucks to get in. And if you have prepared a five to six minute story that matches the theme of the night, you throw your name in a hat and then they pick 10 names out of the hat and the 10 people come up and tell a story. And they have, they pick people out of the audience to be judges and stuff. And so there's three sets of judges and you tell a story and you get your scores and the rush is telling your story. I mean, it's a, on a stage into this beautiful microphone. Your voice sounds so good. Spotlights and the 200 of the friendliest people you've ever heard. They're hanging on or ever seen. They're just hanging on every word. They've got a drink in them. They're laughing at every joke. I mean, it is a storyteller's dream come true audience. And so, um, so I, I, I went to the moth to check it out and watch and then I went to the moth and I told a story. My first story was about how I met my husband online, an internet dating story. And then um, then they had a theme a couple of weeks later that was about trailblazing. And so I had to shorten my Pathfinder story from 12 minutes to about five or six minutes. And I went and told the story and I won. And so it was amazing. And uh, and then, as you know, the the story got picked up by Goalcast, and they they um, edited it out, but then they put in pieces of of uh, The Martian and other things to make it really cool visually. And then that is sitting at something like 1.3 million views. And um, but it's, it all started with the moth. And so and and so two weeks ago, I just needed a I needed another dose of I seriously it is it is the it is an addicting drug to get up in front of people and tell those stories or tell a story. And so I was like, I just got to hanker in to go tell another story. And so I went a few weeks ago and I told uh, a longer version of the Helen story that I told you. 
And I won again and I couldn't believe it, you know. And so when you win, every 10 winners, they do what they call a grand slam and they rent like a big hall with a couple of thousand people and you have to tell a completely different story. And um, (laughs) how cool is this? Like, how am I not? How did I never know about this? Like, what a wonderful premise to like pay 10 bucks, listen to these awesome stories and I mean, like, and you in particular, you are a gifted speaker. I mean, you're emotional, which I love. Like, you just let oh it go. You let no, so, but that's a good thing. Like, I like how you just let it hang out there. You uh, have a cool yeah. sense of humor. It's like, it's some people try to be funny and if they fail miserably, yours are kind of like little subtle things, but they're, they're funny as heck. And you let it out there. Uh, you're one hell of a storyteller, Cindy. There's no other way to phrase that. Well, thank you. It's it is so fun. I highly encourage people to listen to the Moth podcast to see what I'm talking about, and then um, to check out the Moth if you have one in your city. Um, you know, uh, luckily in Seattle we have two a month, so there's plenty of opportunities around here. And it's just it is the coolest. It is the absolute coolest thing. You you wait. You know, start listening to the stories and then let me know how much you enjoyed it because it's they're amazing. Yeah. They are they're absolutely amazing. But but the connection here's the connection. You're an awesome storyteller that which which would tell me that you know you work you're a, you're a coach which makes it like all this stuff is intertwined of being a public speaker being like it's all genuine none of nothing about you is fake or forced because that happens a lot with with like I mentioned that earlier with public speakers or um, motivation with you everything is sincere real and it's so well just put out there it's like this is who I am. Like, I love it. I love your style, Cindy. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. I mean, the, you know, lots of hard life lessons, but at the end of the day, all you can do is be the best you that you can be. And so uh, it's taken me a long time to learn it, but it's like, hey, I just want to be the, the best version of myself that I can be and, and be authentic. And that seems to really resonate with people. You know, and, and, and I listened to this, you know, you're the gold cast, and then I went and watched the other videos, the full length ones. I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell you a few things. One, I'm I'm a little bit mad at you because after I was done watching, I watched it during my lunch break and my many of my colleagues said, What's wrong? Are, are you okay? Because there was tears down my face. And I'm oh, like I, I'm like, when I talk to the, if she agrees to come on my podcast, when I talk to her, I'm gonna yell at her. But it was like <laughs> When you were telling this, and, and, and I want you if, you, if you don't mind telling a very, you know, easy version for you. You don't have to go through the whole 10-minute thing. But mm-hmm. when, when the audience, when you were talking to the moth audience, and this is what I loved, and I, I, I've been dying to tell you this. You said when you first saw, and, and I, I, I'm going to mutilate this story, but you, you said that's basically that's my ship. And, and when you said it to the audience, they um, were like, they were like, oh, ha-ha, well, like, whatever. Ha-ha. And then you said it again a lot more, like I was one of 200 people that, Help put that there. Then when you said it that way and it clicked for them, they were like, oh, my God. Like, for me, it was the audience, the way you told the story and how the audience finally picked up on what you were trying to tell them. Like, the second time, the second time it was like, boom, they finally got what you were trying to say. And it is one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, and so that's the beauty of the moth too, right? Is you have to, con- how do you get the audience with you there so that they can understand how much this means to you in the shortest amount of time, because you don't have that long to tell the story. And, and there's components that I definitely wanted to tell. Right. And so it just came to me that, so 
because I mean, Pathfinder was 20 years ago, coming up on 21 years ago that it landed. And, um, it, it was, it was, it's so meaningful to me that I, and I'll start crying now. It's like, I literally can't talk about it. Yeah. It, it, it's something that, yeah, it definitely hits home with you. It does. And it's just like to be, to have been a part of something like that, that like everybody knows what it is just about. And, and there's been so many successful Mars missions since then, but uh, you know, but Pathfinder was the first one and, and, and everything has built upon that success. And so, you know, and uh, one of the things that's very funny about Microsoft is that it's like, it's all about what you've done at Microsoft. There's very few people ask you what you, you know, or ask you what you did before, or it'll be a passing comment or whatever, but it really doesn't matter that much. And so, so many people I worked with had no idea, even though I have this framed photo of a rocket in my office that I've always had, people just didn't know what that was about. Or, or I'd say, oh yeah, I worked on that spacecraft thing. And I, you know, but I never really told stories about it. And, um, and so when I when I got up and, and told the whole story at the so I told the whole story at that one event and then I had to shrink it down. It was like, well, how do I get people with me? And I remembered that when I went to go see the Martian, I had no idea. I knew that JPL had participated in it, and because my friends at JPL were posting, you know, bring him home things on their Facebook pages and were saying how exciting it was, but I had no idea that. Pathfinder would be in the movie and so I was sitting there in the movie theater just chomping on my popcorn like everybody else and all of a sudden he starts you know he's he's in bad shape right he's stranded and he starts driving across the planet and he knows exactly where he's going right he if you recall from the movie it's like he's he's plotted a course to something sure. and it's like where is he going because he's it didn't look like he was going to head over to that you know, do the big trip to that other, um, what is it? The Mav or whatever. Um, he, he was going someplace else. And so it started to register in my head. Maybe that's where he's going. Maybe that's where he's going. And then he gets out of the the thing and he just starts digging and he, I think he trips up uh, a piece of the parachute or something. He stumbles on that and he, and and then he starts digging and then you see the solar arrays and it just wrecked me. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Like, so, so when you're at the theater and you see this, I mean, there's got to be like 20 years worth of memories just hit you like oh. this. Like, oh. who just, can hit, who? just so much pride in it. And it's like an old friend. Is that how you look? And one of my questions was, how do you look? Is that how you look at Pathfinder? Do you look at it like, like a, like a, like a relative, like a son or, or a, a child? Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of way you look at that? I kind of do. It's, it's I, it's more of it's a, it was a magical magical time right. and I uh, I mean when you know you you do these events with different teams and organizations and people will say what's the best team you ever worked on by far the Pathfinder team was the best team I ever worked on that we had old people we had young people we were all um, we were all defying the odds right Every, nobody thought. A lot of people at JPL did not want to work on Pathfinder. They they thought it was doomed to fail because it was so cheap, right? Two hundred million dollars was just not enough money to uh, to get much done, and it was one fifteenth the budget if you you know dollar cost average or whatever type of thing if you uh, accounted for the 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 changes in time from the seventies. It was one fifteenth of what we spent on the Voyager missions. 
And, um, and so everyone just was like, you can't do it. You don't even, we didn't even have a landing. Like we weren't going to do a controlled landing. We were going to do a crash landing with airbags. Everyone. So people just, a lot of people stayed away from it. And so the consequence of that was we had, we had a bunch of mavericks who, um, were our leaders, people who were just like can do geniuses. And then we had a ton of younger people like myself that were earlier in career. A lot of people, it was their absolute first job out of college and then we had a lot of people that it was their last job before retirement. Like, what do I have to lose kind of a thing. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and it was just this cool mix of old and young men and women. And we just, and we, you know, as I say in the video, it's like, it was just, it was just this unit. And, and if you proved yourself that you were worthy, you got to work on other things with the mission. And so that, if you got hired in for one thing, that didn't mean that that was where you were going to stay forever. We allowed people to kind of grow with the mission as it went along. And, um, and so it was just such a magical time. And so that's why it, it means so much to me, not only the success that it went on to have, but it was such a magical thing to be a part of. And just for people that don't know, because I, I, in case they've been living under a rock, just briefly tell people what Pathfinder is, because there are some people I'm sure that are under a rock and they haven't been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Pathfinder was put together in the mid nineties as a, as a, you know, the, the vision from NASA was that instead of doing these huge um, missions to other planets and to go explore, they wanted to darken the sky with small missions. That was their, that was the idea at the time, but we, they needed a pathfinder small mission to, to blaze the trail and show that it could be done really cheap. And so there, so NASA came out with this faster, better, cheaper idea. And, um, and so pathfinder was the first one and uh, the idea was we were going to blast it out of Cape Kennedy. It would have a six-month cruise to Mars. That's the shortest uh, window that you can get to Mars. And um, and then it was going to – airbags were going to inflate, and it was going to crash land onto the surface. And then it, it opened up, and, um, and a little uh, rover car would drive out and do experiments on the surface of Mars for a few weeks. And we would learn a lot about, you know, a lot about the terrain and just learn a lot about, it was basically a, like a fact finding, a learning type of a thing. Could we do it like this? And, um, and so that's what it was. And so we, yeah, we launched in December of 96 and landed in on July 4th, 1997. And, um, and then Pathfinder was only designed to last a few weeks and she lasted three months. And uh, named all the rocks after cartoon characters, you may recall. And um, and it was just, yeah, it was just amazing. My friend, and I had left the lab by then, um, but I uh, would see my friends on the news all the time. It was so cool. And, um, and yeah, it was just, it's amazing to be a part of history. So is that why you left <clears throat> JPL? Because I, I think this is what I, I, I learned is that, you left because, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, please correct me. That you felt that you could never duplicate or replicate the the how much that meant yeah. to you. The whole experience with Pathfinder. You said, "I I, I can't. I can never replicate what this means to me." Yeah. I, you know, is that fair? Yeah. yeah. And so 
one of the things that was so amazing about that team was that the whole time, like the, the people who had worked on multiple other missions and the people who had, who were retiring, they would keep saying, this is really special. Enjoy every minute of it. This is really special. This is the best thing I've ever worked on. And so we, so that was a, a theme throughout the whole time was everyone realized we were part of something really, really special. And the old timers were telling us this was the best that they'd ever been a part of. Right. And so um, my role within Pathfinder really didn't roll into the operations part, which is the, the surface part. So once we launched, I moved on to another spacecraft and and it was going to be another couple of years of really duplicating the exact type of work that I had done on Pathfinder, but for another mission with another team of people. And so it was like I could just see that my skills really weren't going to grow that much. I was, it was just, it's like you're a hired gun to come in and keep doing what you've been doing. And the team was nowhere near the same as my Pathfinder team. And so I just thought, man, I'm going to, and I lived very far away from JPL. And so it's like, I'm going to be driving 45 minutes to an hour every day to, to do something that I'm just going to be reminded every day that it's not as good as what it was. And my skills aren't really growing. And, and I thought, or I could use this as, as a really great resume opener, right? And, and, and that's really the point in time where I switched from really having a job and earning a paycheck to having a career in technology. And so, um, so I, I decided to leave and go do something else. It was really hard. I cried like a baby at my going away party. But at the end of the day, it was the right thing for me to do. Wasn't there a 20th anniversary or a 20th? Yep. How was that? Yeah. Did you see old friends and people? Was oh, my gosh. Thing? Yeah, it was amazing. So that was last June. And they had a big 20th anniversary party. They showed this great documentary about Pathfinder, which is really cool. So if you can get your hands on that, watch that. For sure. Um, and... Um, and then we just reminisced and told stories and laughed and um, yeah, we just had had the best time and seeing everybody and um, a lot of people have gone on to you know to really big success at NASA and at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or at other companies and um, and a few of us left kind of that life but are we're back for the reunion and and it was just super super fun yeah it was I mean and and. And to a person, everybody's still, like, they're so excited about what they've done since then. But they, everyone just has this huge, special place in their heart for Pathfinder. I'm curious, Cindy, did they have the same type of reaction you did when they saw The Martian? I think the people who still work at JPL knew that Pathfinder was in The Martian. Yeah. But I didn't know. And because I... Um, actually, since the reunion is like we got more hooked up on uh, Facebook and things like that. But before that, we weren't we weren't that engaged. And I was engaged with a few of them, but nobody tipped me off. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. No, I was going to say so that, but that left to me being totally surprised. And so then I reached out to my best buddy from Pathfinder, Becky, who lives in Minnesota, and I didn't tell her either. And I just said, "You have to go see this movie." <laughs> <laughs> well, fun fact. Hey, fun fact: you and Becky invented the selfie. Maybe. Oh yeah, I don't think so. But but yeah, the the night of the launch, we stopped. Uh, so the rocket was like half an hour away from. 
at least 20 minutes away from where our outpost building was, where we managed the launch. And so you drive onto Cape Kennedy and you, I mean, Cape Kennedy's massive just, and so um, we stopped along the road where the, where the rocket was and we got out of the car and it was pitch black at night and we tried to take selfies of ourselves. And this was before digital camera. So I, I asked Becky, we can't find that picture, but we know we have them somewhere. Um, and so we tried to take selfies of ourselves with the rocket in the background. And then, um, yeah, we didn't call it selfies at that time. And then we made our way over to the outpost building. And then that's what made us late. We were a little bit late. <laughs> so, so my, my, my last question about the Martian is do you watch it often? Do you kind of, or is it just, is it, I don't want to say tough for you to watch, but it's clearly emotional as it should be. Like, oh, yeah. I, I would, no, I would yeah. be so moved by that. Like, if that was me, yeah. if I knew my work was into that, I, I, I would have had the same reaction you had, but probably yeah. even, like, I don't know. I, that's amazing to me. Yeah, it's just that one part really gets me, and then the rest of the movie I can watch. But it's another one. If, if, if I see it, like, even if it's on Netflix or I was on a flight the other day where it was one of the free movies that was offered. It's like, I can't not watch it. I have to watch it. You know, I was like, I could, and I love the disco music. I love everything about it. I love the humor in it. And, um, and then I get to see my old friend Pathfinder. So I have to ask you, are, and, and are your son and your husband as impressed with Cindy as I am? Or is it just <laughs> like, I have to, like, are they like, is your son like, wow, that's pretty damn cool that my mom did that. And does your husband have that same reaction? Oh, my husband's super proud of me, as are my parents. And my parents live with us. And uh, my son is 16. And I think he's just, he takes it, at, you know, he takes it all with a grain of salt. He's like, yeah, that's okay. I um, I did a speaking thing at, at Princeton over his spring break. And so I made him go with me. And, um, and so he listened to me talk for about 45 minutes and, and, um, and I was like, did you learn anything that you didn't know before? And he was like, yeah. (laughs) And I told the story about failing calculus a couple of times. He's like, I didn't know you had to take calculus three times. And I'm like, yeah. So, but he's heard of, and, and actually when I practiced my moth story on him before I went to the the time when I told the Pathfinder story, I was having, I was struggling with my ending. And so he listened to my whole story and he goes, you need, and I was like, eh, you know, cause at the end I say, and I learned three big things. I learned to, um, uh, uh, not listen to when people have to doubters and to, to do it anyway. And to, um, take chances, even if I have no idea what I'm doing. And then I needed a third thing. And, and cause I believe in the power of three. Right. And he goes, Check the cables. <laughs> I was like, perfect. Yes. So that he actually helped me in that story, and um, and so that was it. Oh, that is such a great story. Um, so I have to ask you: Would you give an abbreviated version of what happened for those that don't know? Because there are some people that are, yeah. are don't, don't know what we're talking about now. I, I don't want to have you go into a ten minute. I hate to ask you that, but if you don't mind, no, no, no. and I get to set the record straight because. It's funny, like on the Goldcast video, so 1.3 million views of the Goldcast video. Um, and I, I, when they asked me if they could do it, I was like, if I get to approve the final version, sure, because we did tweak a couple of things before they, um, before the the final one. But 
uh, you know, my life has not changed uh, at all since that went live. And you're the first person who's ever asked to like talk to me or interview me about, about it since that because of that video, really. I've had like three LinkedIn people and then I've had you and I had another girl just reach out to me on Facebook just to say that she admired it. And I was like, oh my gosh, 1.3 million people watch it and it really hasn't changed my life at all. It's the most. Um, it's, it's Cindy. It's one, of, and I'm not saying this because, and I feel bad because I'm throwing so many compliments at you. It's it's honestly, and I've done over almost a hundred interviews. It's one of the most impressive stories I've ever heard. Oh, oh that's so sweet. Well, um, it, but so uh, when I like the first day it went live, I did like read some of the comments, and people are like, "Oh, that's such a great story," and then other people were like, "Who does this chick think she is?" So here I'm going to set the record straight on a few things that I did read in the negative comments. But then after that, I I after the first day I stopped reading the comments, and so I really haven't got a chance to hear from people who enjoy the story because I just refuse to. I even involve myself in that negativity. Like I said earlier, I'm an, I'm about catching people doing good. Yep. I just I refuse to partake in that. And so, um, what here's what happened. Like I said, we got to wear a lot of hats on Pathfinder that you weren't locked into one job or another necessarily as as the as the program progressed. And so, as we were getting closer and closer to launch, there started being this buzz about the launch team. And that was, I can't remember. It was like 20 to 25 people who would go and be a part or who would go live and work at Cape Kennedy for two to three months, putting the spacecraft together for the final assembly, doing the final testing and everything. And the group that I hung with the most was like the test group. That was, those were my peeps. And Oh my gosh, we had just this, it was such a fun crowd. We had gone whitewater rafting together and we just had this, amazing friendship and, and just this really good um uh good times together and so they were all going and they were all going to go be a part of the launch thing and i was going to be left behind and i was just because because my role i wrote um simulation software so that we could fake the spacecraft out make it think it was either flying to mars or doing operations on the surface when in fact it was right in our lab and so i really wrote all a lot of that code and um, and so that that job was like partially needed at the Cape, but it just wasn't enough to get me on the launch team. And so I needed something to kind of balance out my repertoire and get me on the launch team. And 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 all my buddies were like pulling for me, too, because, you know, because we knew it was going to be a good time. <laughs> they, they they put you up like it was the cost of living was super cheap on Cocoa Beach near Cape Kennedy. And so we would all be renting our own beachfront condo and we'd all be neighbors and, you know, we could just see the good times ahead. Right. And as well as doing all the hard work of getting Pathfinder ready. And so I just had to find a way onto this launch team. And so um, I was in a cubicle with one of my coworkers, Ron, the Unix system administrator one day, and he started saying that he was on the launch team and he didn't want to go because his wife was about to have a baby and it would be terrible timing for them that there was this was no time for him to be away from home for months and that his wife was going to kill him. But he, you know, he was the lone system administrator, Unix system administrator on the project. And so there, he just didn't see any other options. And so that's, you know, the, the famous three words, I'll do it, um, came out. And uh, 
And I said, why don't you train me how to be like your junior system administrator and I'll go do all the work and you'll be a phone call away, right? If anything gets too hairy. And, um, and he liked the idea and um, we sold it to management and they bought in and he started training me. So he absolutely trained me how to be an system administrator. I think in my story, I gloss over that a little bit, right? Um, but he absolutely trained me. I had books and books of instructions of what to do. And, um, and, and he was a phone call away, right? And so, so I go to the I, so I got selected to be on the launch team, and so then I go to the Cape, and I had to put all the computers together and lay all the cable and, and then um, initialize all the Unix machines. In my talk, I said format the Unix machines, and I got criticism for that. You don't format a Unix machine. You initialize it. So, okay, whatever. Oh and so I initialized the, all the machines, and then, um, and then I would help out. I'll admit I had kind of light work the whole time, right? It wasn't it wasn't crazy, but I got to be part of the experience, and I tried to help out my coworkers wherever I could, and um, and I was so that was my job. And then the night of the night of the launch, uh, we were a little bit late getting there, and when I got there, people were giving me a stink eye. There was a sense of panic throughout the room, slight panic, right? And we had no connection back to JPL. And everyone was looking at me as the unit system administrator. Can you fix this? And I'm thinking, and I guess they had already tried to call both me and Ron. And because um, I think we must have had cell phones. I don't even know. Yeah, we must have had cell phones. Um, and, uh, and so neither one of us picked up. And so there was still, Ron was still probably a phone call away somewhere. And, um, but I was the one there and they were looking at me to fix it. And I, you know, of course, I freaked out a little bit, but at the same time, I had been trained. I did have things to try, and so the first thing to try was to check all the cables. And so I, I checked the back of every computer, every piece of test equipment, and then finally found my way over to the the box in the the Cisco router box in the corner. And sure enough, a cable had come loose, and I just jiggled it back in, and we were back online, and and I was a hero for a few seconds, right? For you know, but it was. It, we went from panic to, oh, everything's okay again. And then the funny thing is, is we actually didn't even launch that night. We launched the next night. So something happened in the very last countdown that night, nothing to do with me, where we didn't launch. And we just came back the next night and did the whole thing over again and launched. But um, that's that's the story. Yeah, and I don't think... You, I don't think you had to clarify anything because everything you just said is, is exactly what that what I saw in the gold cast and what I saw on on your YouTube uh, page. You know, there's it's just please don't read those negative comments because I love your story as it is. Oh, and, thank and, and, you. And there's nothing you have to change. If you came out with a cure for cancer, those people would have said, "What took you so long?" So don't, yeah, please do not listen to those people. Well, I think people were thinking I was paying fast, playing fast and loose with the taxpayer money that could have cost the whole mission. And it's like, hey, people were a phone call away. We would have figured something out. But I got to, I got to dig deep and trust myself that I knew what I was doing and find a solution. And I found it. And um, I think that's the that's the whole part of the story too. It's like. It, it is um, taking chances with things when, you know, why not, why not learn how to do something? You're not there yet, but you could learn how to do something, but you got to say the magic words, I'll do it. You got to step forward. And um, that was, that's the biggest lesson out of Pathfinder is why not me? 
Oh, and, and when I saw that video, outside of everything I already told you, I just think everyone, like high school kids need to hear this story. I, I just think it's such your life in oh. general, but especially this story. And I'm serious, Cindy, because I think what you're saying is so moving and you had a huge part to do with this. And I don't know, I just, I, this is a story that everyone needs to hear. You know, I, I, I'm a big believer in that. Oh, thank you. So, thank you. So, so do you, so I know, um, you know, you, you're at Microsoft now. Do the, do the people that work with you and for you, are they aware of what you did at, at with JPL and NASA? Are they aware of uh, Pathfinder? Well, now they are because, um, so this, out of that same event, the girl told me I needed to go on the moth and then she said we need to do an internal or we need to do a, a we call it the Microsoft News type of article about you. So she connected me to one of the reporters for the Microsoft News. And um, this January, I think it was January, January, February, January, they um, they wrote an article about me that was posted both internally and externally for, uh, uh, you know, to it promotes, you know, women in STEM and women at Microsoft and, um and so yeah, so that I've gotten a lot of traction off of that as well. Yeah, and and I mean, it's it's, it's just the whole thing is so amazing. Do you ever think about what would have happened if you stayed at, with JPL or as a contracted worker? Do you ever wonder what it yeah. would, what would have happened? I do, I do. I think I think if I would have stayed with JPL, then that that I should have um, I would have needed to convert to a full time employee. And and hey, I don't feel like that's even out of the cards. Maybe someday I'll go back and and work with them in some capacity um i would love to do that um but yeah i i wonder if i would if what would have been like if i had stayed but i don't regret anything i think it's it's turned out pretty amazing and um and you know and just because just one thing leads to another leads to another right uh that has just uh i'm i'm i live in gratitude every single day and I thank you so much for all this time. I have one final question for you. So have we ignored NASA overall, Cindy? Have we? Because you have an awesome line about Waterworld uh, in the video. in your uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so have we? I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny because I feel like should we be putting more into NASA? I mean, do we ignore it? I I think sometimes, you know, I think sometimes people have a real negative um, and it's probably a very small group of people, right? But they have a negative attitude about why do we spend money on that when we have this problem or that problem on this planet, right? So there's, and you're never going to satisfy all those people. But I also think that um, we're we're meant to explore, right? We're meant to be curious. There's so much power in, in curiosity and 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 what could possibly happen, right? And so. Yeah, I, I think we, um, I, I, I love to read about NASA missions and NASA findings and, and I uh, have huge enthusiasm for, for what they're doing at JPL and at NASA in general. And um, I'm excited. I, I personally wouldn't want to go, but I'm excited that we're looking at sending people to Mars. And, um, and yeah, I just think the sky's the limit. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, that you know, we, we get a lot out of this, um, a lot out of the innovation, uh, that uh, it applies back to us here on earth. Right. And so, it, but we have to keep pushing. And, um, and so I, 
and it's it's exciting now too. You see things like SpaceX and and um, uh, commercial companies that are are helping us get to the stars. And so, yeah, I think I think there's a lot out there, and I think it benefits us all to um, to go after it. And I think it inspires a lot of people to go after it. Has that ungrateful Matt Damon sent you a thank you card yet? <laughs> no, yeah, no, no news from Matt Damon whatsoever. Oh, I will tell you though, I do have a movie credit somewhere, um, and that is the first house my husband and I bought. So I li- used to live in LA, obviously. The first house that we bought was a had just been used in a movie with Matt Damon's buddy Ben Affleck. And uh, the movie was called Bounce with Gwyneth Paltrow and Ben Affleck. Have you seen that one? Yes, I have. Okay. So in that movie, she lives in our house. And um, we bought it, and it had just been used for the movie. And we moved in, and they said, well, don't change anything too drastically until the movie comes out, because they may need to come back and reshoot scenes. And we're like, yeah, right. Well, sure enough, a few weeks later, our phone rings, and it was them, and they wanted to come back and uh, and shoot scenes. And so they paid to move us out of the house for two weeks and um, gave us a nice uh, eating allowance and all kinds of stuff like that, and, uh, and they reshot some scenes. So when you watch the movie, look at Gwyneth's, Gwyneth's hair and Ben Affleck's hair, and you can see the difference when, they, when they're doing the reshoots. How amazing is that? <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. Is there anything that you wanted to promote? Uh, that's an awesome story. Is there anything that you wanted to get out there, whether it's a speaking engagement, things you're up to? Is there anything you wanted to float out there? Um, I'm, I'm speaking at um, the Museum of Flight in, I think it's in October, at a, a women's breakfast that's that benefits STEM education. So I think uh, anyone local here can uh, attend that event. Love to see a full house for that. And then, um, yeah, that's, that's really it. I'm, uh, I'm just getting rolling or getting started as a, as doing speaking engagement. So I'm open to that. If people want to reach out to me, LinkedIn is probably the best way to find me. And, um, and that's it. I, I'm, I'm so honored that you even wanted to talk with me today. So I can't thank you enough for, for this. This makes my week. Welcome to the Astronaut Candidate Program. Now pay attention, because this could save your life. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, let me get a few things out of the way right off the bat. Yes, I did in fact survive on a deserted planet by farming in my own shit. Yes, it, uh, it's actually worse than it sounds, so let's not talk about that ever again. Uh, the other question I get most frequently is, when I was up there, stranded by myself, did I think I was going to die? Yes, absolutely. And that's one you need to know going in, because it's going to happen to you. This is space. It does not cooperate. At some point, everything's going to go south on you. Everything's going to go south, and you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Now, you can either accept that, or you can get to work. That's all it is. You just begin. You do the math. You solve one problem, then you solve the next one, and then the next. And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. All right, questions? 